Welcome to the Biblical Theology Briefing. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live in our virtual studio by my good friend, Ben Glad. Ben, how you doing? Yeah, I'm really good. It's uh, Friday. Uh, we've got Super Bowl this weekend. I've got pork shoulder on the smoker. I'm just trying to think, how much food am I going to eat? I've been thinking about fasting for the remainder of the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What are you, what are you doing for Super Bowl? Yeah, we uh we host our small groups uh Super Bowl party here and we we do dips. That's the big thing that we kind of oh, do right. in terms of the food right. item. But uh sorry, does that mean you're doing pulled pork? Is that what you're you're doing then? Well, that? The, yeah, that's just on me. Nikki's doing tons of stuff. I mean, she's doing these pretzel bites and these uh, cheese and yeah, she makes tons and tons of stuff. So it's a, it's a big deal for her. You know, Matt, I, I saw a poll that somebody took and they asked all these people, which one would you rather have happen? Uh, your team that you're rooting for lose the Super Bowl or run out of Super Bowl snacks. And the vast majority of people were like, we could care less about our team losing. Don't mess with the food. Are you right. in that? Are you, where, where do you find yourself? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the, the food is the essential item there. And um, we have a, uh, a woman in our group who makes legendary Buffalo chicken dip and it is mm. to die for. Mm. So mm. Uh, if, I would much rather the game be a dud and the food be amazing than the other Amen. way around. Hey man, I really, I, yeah. I mean, unless, unless your team that you've cheered for for a long time is in it. Yeah. 80, 90% of people could really, at the end of the day, they really could care less. And it's a very sobering thought for all the players. And yeah, <laughs> most people don't care. They just want to hang out and have a good time. It's, I, yeah. I, and to be honest, I mean, I don't even think, I think this is the only time in the entire year when it's a national holiday, basically, and everybody's eating together because everything else is more family, right? Yeah. Thanksgiving, Christmas. They're just, you know, I don't know. I think this is a big deal. Yeah, Food for wise. sure. Yeah. Um, well, we, we also have to comment, Ben, on your actual physical location of where you're joining us from, because we're, right. we're, we're episode five now, and we've recorded a couple episodes with you in your campus office. We recorded right. one with you in your home office. The last and now, one. yeah, in, in the latest uh, version of where is Ben sort of the, where is Waldo version of the podcast? Uh, where, where are you joining us from today? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm in my fitness gym here, not my house, but there's we have a fitness gym uh, in our neighborhood. We've got tennis courts, pools, all the uh, tons of equipment. And so right now, I can see a person there. They're on the treadmill. We got some bikes over here, some weights. So I just camp out in one of the rooms that they set aside. And the way that I work here is that I work for a while, may hop on a bike, may do some bench press. Uh, I walk. This is how I get my steps in. It's really, I mean, I both exercise the mind and the body. Yeah. You're quite the Renaissance man there, Ben. I mean, um, yeah. do you have a set the only thing I have man? Not, the, only, the only thing I have not done, though, is I have not gone for a swim today. 
and uh, <laughs> it's a little early in the season for that. But I do, I, I, yeah. Do I have a plan? Uh, just my plan is to not die, uh, not, <laughs> not get massively obese. You know, <laughs> that's, that's a good plan. When I look over, yeah. So that's yeah. So this helps me achieve that. That's good. That's good. Uh, well, I mean, let us know if you want to, you know, break it out in the middle of, of the pod and, you know, get a few ah. reps in on the bench or, uh, you know, yeah, the bike. there's a bench right next to me. And if this guy needs a spot, I may have to take it. I may have to leave real quick. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, well, we should mention we are. Uh, our podcast is part of the Confessional Podcast Network, a network of podcasts that seek to explain and apply biblical truth. So you can find other podcasts that are part of this network if you go to confessionalpods.com. So go check out some of those other podcasts as well. We're grateful to be uh, partnering with them. And uh, before we get into the main topic of what we're talking about today, I did want to give you a chance to talk about the conference that you are doing with Greg Beal. So yeah, what, tell us thanks. about that. Yeah, thanks. So Greg Beal and I are doing a conference on April 28th in Plano, Texas. And it's a one day only. It's a Friday from morning until night. And we have plenary stuff, but it's mostly very hands-on how to teach and how to preach the New Testament use of the old, really a lot what we talk about here uh, on this forum. And I'm going to do some stuff. Greg's going to do some stuff. We are really, really excited. We have tons of interest and we're hoping for at least 100 people. I think we can get it. The, the price is only 50 bucks and they're, oh, wow. they're going to provide food as well. So uh, yeah, we're really excited about the idea is just how can pastors and teachers learn how to do what we do, what Matt does, what I do. It's not rocket science, obviously, because I want to be able to do it. And it's just <laughs> a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's, so the idea here is to train and teach pastors and preachers, and not just pastors and preachers. Uh, maybe there are seminary students or college students or women or teenagers or whoever who are really interested in learning more about this um, this conference is for you. It's just a one day thing, 50 bucks, Plano, Texas. I'm going to catch the, um, the Rangers are playing the Yankees on the following day. They're in, uh, Dallas. So I'm going to check out that game as well. So come and watch. Is, them, uh, watch is, is Beal going to go with you? I don't know. I'm afraid that if he does come, he'll just read it, read a book the whole time. Um, <laughs> last time, the last time he and I went to a Cubs game, I remember we, we, I mean, this is like Sammy Sosa era and we're watching it. I had so much fun at the game. He had extra tickets. So he asked me to come along and I was a student then. This was when I was doing my MA. So I didn't really have, you know, I wasn't married or anything. And uh, we go to this game and Greg had brought all these books on the temple because he was writing his temple book. So in between innings, he's there, you know, reading these things. And uh, I didn't, I mean, I'm like, man, this guy's pretty hardcore. He yeah. only watches baseball when, <laughs> I mean, that's right. I, you get it. You get it. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, that's, maybe he will come and this time he'll watch. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe he finds it a really conducive work environment to, you know, watch an inning. <laughs> yeah, and then, I, mean, 
between I mean, the innings. You know, that's right. You know, you watch. It's funny. You, I remember watching games. Um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and people would be out there with their newspapers. Remember this and that between innings, where they would have full on newspapers. Yeah, that they would read between innings because it's so slow, or even during the inning. Now everybody's on their phone, and it's right. amazing how you can, you know, you'll see in the camera, and half the stadium is on their phone. Nobody's yeah. watching these things. So yeah, <laughs> so true. <laughs> I guess it's a good reading environment. I, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'll try to remember to throw a link if there's a link. Yeah, we have a registration page. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. That'd be great. We can throw that in the show notes, and that way, people, if they're uh, in that area or want to make the trip, they can uh, get registered. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great opportunity for people to uh, learn better how to read the Bible, and um, whether that's just as you said for one's own personal devotional. Uh, life, or whether you have uh, opportunities to to preach and teach, right? Um, right. And you, know, you don't and have think, to be a scholar. It's yeah. just this is just just this is just kind of the basis how it works. It's not entirely difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad to see uh, you and Greg are doing that. That and you guys have a great dynamic, being good friends, and you having studied under him. So. Uh, it's not just going to be dry academic stuff. There's going to be a lot of good, uh, friendly yeah, and, uh, uh, good interaction between the two of you. So it's fun. yeah, it's absolutely. Fun. People should check that out. All right. Well, what do we got going on today, Matt? Well, uh, today we are talking about my book. The God Who Judges and Saves, A Theology of Second Peter and Jude. Fresh off the presses. And Matt, Matt, when did this come out? Uh, well, it came out the first week of February here. So, I mean, you know, we're right on the cutting edge of when this is out. So, this is, this is going to be all the rage. Can people buy it on Amazon? That's what I want to know. Absolutely. They can buy it on Amazon. Uh, they can probably find it on christianbook.com and other uh, retailers. Or you can always just go directly to the Crossway uh, website. And uh, I think uh, Crossway has a deal where if you become a member, they have a membership program that you get uh, a discount off of their books directly ordered through them. So that's another option to uh, to find it. It's uh, Yeah, Crossway does a good job putting these things together. Um, and it's in the same series that your book on the Gospel of Luke was in. Yeah. So I like this one better. I got to be honest. I like yours better. I like the color better. Than yeah, it's mine. A, I I do like the 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 deep blue color here. They're uh, I mean they're color coding them by uh, Cor- like section Corpus, of the New something Testament. Something like that. Yeah. Section. Well, it's, yeah. it's yeah. gospels are all in um, uh, red. Yeah. And then Crimson, sorry, Crimson. There you go. And then I think the Pauline epistles, I think there's the one on Ephesians is out is like a mustard color orange. It's like a mustard, okay. which is my least favorite because yes. because the the font or the it's it's the embossment or whatever, it's gold. And so I yes. harder to see it, yeah, for I don't sure. Know. I I'm not keen on that. We'll see how that works. But your corpus here 
the dark blue. Is there is there another color that's that's the way there's not. Um, Shriners is Shriners book on Revelation. Is that the same color as yours? No, it, it's actually purple, what? a purplish color. Yep. Oh. So they separated wow, that. They out. are getting wild. This is getting wild and crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, they're just trying to keep up with the ESBT that you added. I, know, I mean, those covers I are know. all over the but place. But don't mess with the ESBT. <laughs> ESBT series, I think it looks the best. It looks so, so it's good. Sharp. And I Yeah. Yeah, and the next like the next one that's coming out uh looks really, really good too. I don't I don't have that yet, but I've seen pictures of it and it's really, really good. Yeah, but anyways, but I do like I really really like this series, and I'm and I'm thankful that that Crossways put them together. I hope they sell well. I hope people in the church read them. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, it's it's absolutely uh, pitched at a broad audience. I mean, the series yeah. is called New Testament Theology, but it's very much intended for a wide audience. Uh, the person in the pew, not just for the seminary student or the pastor or the Bible study leader. But I really think any, any believer could pick these up and they're readable enough that they could deeply benefit from uh, looking at the different themes that are discussed in each of the books. I agree. I read this uh, a couple days ago and uh, it, it's, it flows at, which is typical of all your writing. I think, you're very, very clear. Your writing reminds me of Tom Schreiner's. There's a clarity there. Uh, there's an ease with which you write, and it flows well, and I have no trouble at all discerning what you mean. And so I think that this this series, and I think your writing style is just a great pair. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for it. Let me ask you this. So today, this is an odd thing. So today I'm going to be interviewing you, Last time it was switched, and so now, so now I'm going to interview you. I have a list of questions that I wrote down, and I always like the, the first one is pretty much a standard, why did you write this project? And I know yeah. that Tom and Brian asked you to write it, but that's, I'm not, the question is not, well, I just said yes. And the question right. is, well, why did you, in your heart, write it? Yeah. Well, um, I think the main reason was um, I wrote the uh, commentary entries for Second Peter and Jude in the ESV Expositors Commentary series. That's their uh, whole Bible, 12-volume commentary series, which I think they've only got one more volume left to publish. It's the, actually mm-hmm. volume number one, and then the whole thing will be complete. But just by the nature of that series, uh, the commentary was very short. You just had a very limited amount of space. And so one of the things that was really attractive about writing this theology book was the opportunity to expand on things that there just wasn't space to develop in the commentary itself. So that together between the sort of the verse by verse commentary, as well as this now this theology book, I think it gives a uh, a much more holistic treatment of the riches that are in both Second Peter and Jude. And another thing that really enticed me about writing this was the opportunity to situate those themes within the larger biblical, theological, and canonical 
context. So that it's not just, oh, here's a really important theme in Jude or in Second Peter. It's, let me show you how this is connected to the to that theme elsewhere in Scripture, running uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, so that readers get a better idea of, this is not just something that Peter and, and Jude are interested in, but this is actually a thread that runs all throughout the canon. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's terrific. I... I uh... I would, um, I think you successfully did that and demonstrated that. And I think it's worth uh, reading these letters and reading your volume. I think God's people will have a richer understanding of who they are and who Christ is because of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I always love asking this question. What did you uncover? So when you work through this, and maybe this is not so much this volume, but in your commentary, Mm-hmm. Um, that you're like, oh, I didn't know that before. I wasn't anticipating this. Did you have any of that? Yeah, I think um, two things in particular come to mind. Uh, the first is the uh, the very robust doctrine of Scripture that comes out in Second Peter. You know, before really working in those letters, and it, it's it's there in Jude, not as much, but it's still there. Um, before you work through the entirety of those letters, I, I knew, you know, I could, I could point to the verses and think, oh, okay, well, I know this text talks about this aspect of scripture and that sort of thing. But when you really dive in, it's pretty striking, especially in second Peter, how much he has to say about a doctrine of scripture in just a few, you know, short chapters. So you get him emphasizing in particular in chapter one, the uh, the sufficiency of Scripture for life and godliness. And that's an area of Scripture that I think we in the church need to recover a little bit more. Um, I think our tendency as believers can sometimes be to just kind of assume we know what the Bible says and then look to other sources to help us think through important matters and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, when you when you look at that section in 2 Peter, you know, right out of the gate, he's talking about uh, there, starting in verse uh, three. Uh, Peter writes, "His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption." that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so, you know, he, he's, he's stressing that. It's really striking that, that language of verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness, that we can find mm-hmm. those in Scripture, that it's, it's pri- the primary focus in that text is actually God's promises, but in particular, the emphasis on God has given us everything we need for spiritual life and godliness. And I think oftentimes we just kind of forget about that as Christians. And we think, oh, here's this latest book that gives us the 10 keys or the five principles or the four, you know, things. And it's like, okay, those can be helpful at some level, but let's not neglect that scripture itself is sufficient for life and godliness, uh, even in a complex world that we live in today. So that was the mm. first thing that kind of stood out to me in terms of doctrine of scripture. 
But then later in that chapter, you know, you get Peter talking about uh, at the end there in verses 19 and uh, really through the end of that, yeah, 19 through 21, after he's talked about uh, his experience at the transfiguration, verse 19, Peter writes, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy spirit. So even there you're seeing the, uh, both the human and divine um, nature of scripture and how that comes together to produce God's word for his people today. Yeah, I think that's terrific. It there, you know, Matt, there's such a tension in what we do because you and I, we explain our, our calling is to explain what the Bible says, but we don't want people to solely listen to people to you and I and to others for their nourishment. So yeah. In in the sense yeah, absolutely. our calling is to turn people back to the scriptures. So you're like, at the end of the day, don't listen to me, listen to what the Bible says. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think even from a preaching and teaching perspective, uh, and I know you are committed to this as well, the idea of making sure we're trying to help people see directly in the text. Now, this is where I'm getting this. You know, I'm starting here and I've made this connection with this and this conclusion from this. And based on that, this is why I think this is what the text means. So you're trying to point them back to the text to give them confidence in the text itself. And at times showing your work so they see, oh, okay, this is not just because he he wants it to be this way. It's because he's worked in the text and now he's shown me his process but at the end of the day it all starts back with look at the text look at the text look back at the text and if you think i'm wrong which is entirely possible then let's go back to the text together and you you show me why you think i've misstepped or why i've misunderstood the text or why your uh understanding of the text is better in terms of uh encompassing more of what's uh, more of what the text says. So yeah, those are, those are really important realities. Right. And this is a tremendously important point for pastors who get up every Sunday morning and they preach. Mm -hmm. They've got to keep driving home the idea of read your Bibles, read your Bibles because 80%, maybe even more of those in attendance are not reading their Bibles. And so pastors have to get up and say, thus says the Lord, but please read the scriptures, help them just cultivate the entire church, all the elders, the deacons, all the Sunday school teachers. They need to continually cultivate the idea of God's people reading the scriptures for themselves there. It's difficult at times, uh, but that's what the church is for to help help through those uh, those difficulties so they can uh, grow in their faith. And it really is something that church has to be committed to long-term, not just, hey, this is the season of reading our Bibles. No, 
from until until Christ returns, the church has got to cultivate uh, personal reading and devotion and meditating upon the scriptures. And I, you know what a challenge it is for churches to do it, especially in an environment that is in, that is hostile to the scriptures and hostile to our faith. We've got to double down here. We've got to yeah. go even and, and do more and more reading programs. And so whatever that is, sometimes, you know, some people do read through the Bible in a year or something along those lines. And that's terrific. So mm-hmm. anyway, all right, I have I would, many, go ahead. I just want to add real quick. I, I think it's ironic that we have never had more access and easier access to scripture in the history of the world than we do right now in the U S at least. And yet, biblical literacy continues to decline. It's never been easier to read the Bible, to listen to the Bible, to study the Bible. And yet, as a general rule, I mean, I'm sure you're noticing this. I noticed this in my classes. Even as students are coming in, their level of biblical literacy is often lower Mm -hmm. than it it was, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in terms of the average seminary student. And these are people who love God and want to serve him. But just over time, that has just continued to decline. And this is where we uh, in the church and in the academy, I think not just uh, not only do we have to plead with people, read your Bible, listen to the scriptures, immerse yourself in it. But also, I think if we can teach it in a way that is compelling and they see Mm -hmm. things that are legitimately there that they've not noticed before, that that's motivating to say, okay, I didn't really see that before. It's there. I want to go back and read it for myself now and see what else I've been missing, even though I've maybe grown up in the church or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's, that's tremendous. Um, why, this is, this is a, more, a far more basic question. Why are Second Peter and Jude often put together? So if, if you go to a commentary section, and you look for a commentary on Second Peter, most of the time it's going to be paired with Jude or vice versa. Why is that? Yeah, so um, the main reason is there is so much... Because they're two different authors. These are, these yeah, are two absolutely. different authors, right? Two different books, two different yes. authors. Yes. And I think my guess is, I don't know all the, all the particulars of every other volume in this New Testament theology series, but my guess is this is the only volume puts together more than one book and especially more than one book from different authors. Different author. <clears throat> and so in any case, um, the main reason is that if you just look at the content in second Peter chapter two, and then in Jude, you'll see there's a lot of overlap in how both Peter and Jude are addressing false teachers that are plaguing these two respective uh, communities. And so they use a similar set of examples from the Old Testament, and they come to uh, they come to similar conclusions in some ways. And so when there's so much overlap, there's a lot of debate within academic circles. There, the overlap is so clear that there's the discussion of, okay, so did Jude sort of borrow from Peter? Or did Peter borrow from Jude? Or did both of them borrow from a third source that we don't have anymore? So it's that it's that level of What do you overlap. think? What do you think? What do you think? I think I would tentatively say that I think 
um, Peter borrowed from Jude. I think that's the more likely scenario. What about you? Do you have a, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think uh, from what I can tell, most scholars today hold to, hold hold to that view. Um, part of the problem, and you're very aware of this, is well, first of all, the authorship of Second Peter is crazy contested, even yep. among evangelicals, which is which is sad. But the authorship of Jude used to be contested vigorously. That is. You know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, scholars were like, there's no way Jude. Now, Jude, he's the half-brother of Jesus. So that Jude or Judah, there's no way the half-brother of Jesus wrote this thing. Obviously, somebody else wrote it, and they they put this thing way late. Well, the tendency in the last two or three decades, maybe two decades, has been to go back to the traditional view, and that is no Jude, the half-brother of Jesus— really did write this thing. In fact, Bauckham argues that, yes, this is a member of Jesus' family. In fact, this is amazing, Bauckham argues that this thing could have been written in the mid-40s. Yes. Which is incredibly early. And that view is starting to gain momentum now. Um, And if you can have an early date of Jude, then it would have been out there and Peter would have had uh, access to it. I mean, so... Yeah, I don't know what you think about it. I think it's very interesting. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that Bauckham is probably the main reason why that tide has at least turned. It's not, you know, there are still going to be critical scholars who, you know, don't accept that Jude could have written it. But right, I mean, in the in the words of one of the greatest uh, greatest theologian of the 21st century, haters are going to hate. Right, that's what Taylor Swift says. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And so, no matter what you say, they're just they're getting, they're not going to believe it. But you're right. I think Bauckham had a lot to do with that. Yeah, I, for me, the the probably the biggest piece of evidence that suggests that is that when you compare the series of examples that both of them give, there's overlap, but Jude has additional. Uh, examples that are drawn from uh, Jewish traditions and other Jewish literature that Peter does not have. And so to me, it seems like the most likely scenario is that when Peter looked at that, he thought, that's not going to really resonate with my more Greco-Roman audience who's not going to know these Jewish traditions. Whereas I think Jude is probably addressing a more specifically Jewish uh, believing context. And so they would have been familiar with some of these traditions. That makes the most sense to me. Uh, Not a hill I want to die on, but in terms of Mm -hmm. probabilities, that seems uh, persuasive to me uh, in in thinking that through. Right, right. Let me ask you this, and just kind of working through that a little bit more, and we don't... We don't need to spend much time here because this is it's complicated. But let's get back. So both Second Peter and Jude, they are very aware, and Jude is even more so aware uh, of Jewish sources that are not found in the Old Testament. Um, that is scary for a lot of Christians, you know, to come across a text where, like, wait a minute, this isn't the Old Testament. So. My first question, my first question is this: Are there other places in the New Testament? Because there are in the old, but we'll focus on the new. Are there places in the New Testament where we have non-canonical texts mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think 
Uh, to me, one of the more persuasive examples is actually when Paul quotes from Greco-Roman sources, so not even Jewish right, sources. Right. Uh, you know, when he's writing to Titus, uh, he he quotes the Greek poet uh, Epimenides, who mm-hmm. has the lovely quote, uh, Cretans are liars, lazy beasts, and gluttons, basically. Mm-hmm. And so Paul quotes it. And he he's not endorsing uh, Epimenides as, oh, he was an inspired writer of scripture. We should collect his poems and make sure they're included in, in the authoritative set of writings. No, he's simply saying, in this particular instance, he said something that I think is true, and so I'm going to use it. You see a similar mm-hmm. dynamic when he preaches uh, in Athens at the Areopagus. Right, Acts 17. Acts 17. He quotes uh, another Greek prophet. I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now, but but the line is basically, in him like we live and breathe yeah, uh, and have our being. And so mm-hmm. he's using that language. He's picking up that quote without in any way stating, yes, therefore, this is authoritative uh, scripture that I'm referring to. So I think that's mm-hmm. part of what makes people a little uneasy, especially in Jude when he's quoting from what comes to be known as First Enoch, uh, a Jewish text that has a very interesting history of its own uh, within Jewish circles. And then he quotes from what uh, we think was probably something known uh, as the Testament of Moses, which is a you know a story you read that and you go oh my gosh this is so bizarre where because right. you, okay you read through Jude and you're like wait a minute I don't remember in Deuteronomy any section <laughs> where Satan is yeah. arguing with Michael yeah. about the body of Moses I don't really remember that and you flip right. back through you're like nope that's not in Deuteronomy or anywhere else in the Old Testament. Um, just to give and what, what often happens here is a lack of perspective. There are roughly, give or take, depending on how we define it, 355 Old Testament quotations it found in the New Testament. There are, give or take, five to six quotations to either Jewish sources or to Greco-Roman sources. That is, uh, what's the math there? That's not even, <laughs> you know, a s- super small percent. The ratio is yeah. insane on that. Yeah, one percent. It's less one one out of one out of seventy. So you know, we've talked one out of seventy, whatever that is. Yeah. One and a half percent, know. probably or something. Yeah, yeah. We're not math majors. We didn't go. We didn't get our no. PhDs in mathematics. <laughs> no, this is why God. This is why God created Siri. I just say Siri, what's this <laughs> multiply? I mean, I don't know these things. Oh, Siri's yeah. gone off. Um, yeah. <laughs> my phone's messing up. The idea here is that there is no question that the New Testament authors are steeped in the Old Testament, using the Old Testament to shape their writings and to shape their message. They are not using pagan sources in in weaving that into their discussion. That's not what that's not what they're doing. And yeah. so when we do have we come across these things rarely and when we do come across them we need to just grasp the the broad context of what they're doing. So here we have a couple texts that are not found in mm-hmm. the Old Testament, and it, and I think as you point out, whether it's First Enoch, 
uh, what we think it's a testament of Moses there. It, it's that that portion is lost to us. Uh, yeah. That's what that's what Bachum thinks, and I think he's right. And then this other text here, uh, we 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 have these we have these quotations and or allusions to them, and I think the point is, you know what, this writer over here, they say something that is theologically correct. And I'm going to use that in my argument. You know, pastors do that every Sunday. They're quoting, whether it's a hymn or whether it's Tim Keller or a C.S. Lewis, because you typically cite both of those together. You're using, or maybe or maybe not even a Christian. Maybe you'll, you'll cite some, some song that, a, that an unbeliever wrote, but... You'll, but there's I mean, a you just referenced Taylor Swift. I mean, so come on. I mean, that's I'm right. Sure you're dropping. Yeah, <laughs> but she's right, I'm though, sure. right? I, that's exactly right. You, 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 you illustrated this for me. And so, what we get here is we're going to get that. It's just that with with Jude, he uses that word prophesy, and I think that's mm-hmm. the word yeah. that trips a lot of people up. But yeah, I think sure. prophesy. But to prophesy doesn't mean doesn't always mean to to predict a future prophesy can also mean to speak correctly to speak truthfully and i and that's yeah. that's how i take that well and as an example that same verb uh is used in john 11 to talk about caiaphas when he makes the statement it's better mm-hmm. for one man to die than the whole nation perish and John comments and says, basically, he's speaking better than he knew, and he prophesied as the high priest. Well, Caiaphas had no clue that that's what he was actually doing in that sort of extended sense. And so God's ability to even speak through an unbelieving, rebellious high priest to communicate truth should give us a, a a little bit more perspective on how God can, mm-hmm. uh, in one sense, reveal truth, even using unexpected means. Mm-hmm. Right. God speaks, you know, God is the father of all truth, not just special truth, not just the Old Testament. He is the father of all truth. And um, we use, so theologians call that general revelation. And so this would be yep. a nod to some type of general revelation that is woven throughout Jewish scriptures. You know, one one quick side note, and Matt, you know this, but um, uh, these writings, these Jewish writings that are that are sometimes found in Christian texts or even later on, uh, a lot of the Christian communities, for the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part, it was Christians who kept these writings and who copied them and preserved them. So they did not... It's not like they they viewed them as inspired documents and and they wouldn't use them in worship settings, but they were valued by Christians. And I think that's a very important point, just like we treasure uh, writings that are not the Bible, that we benefit and we glean from these texts. We know that Christians uh, use texts and benefited from them, those those texts that were not inspired. Yeah, absolutely. Um uh, I think Bauckham makes the point of uh, you see this model at the, at, at Qumran among the the right. uh, producers and copiers of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where you know they had a they had a view of Scripture and and yet they still had lots of other Jewish writings that they were interacting with and discussing and that sort of thing. 
but there was clear distinctions made between authoritative scripture and these other writings that were of varying levels of helpfulness and truthfulness. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, even the Confessions talks about um, the Apocrypha, and uh, it talks about how it's still a benefit to believers, even though it's not inspired. Um, anyways, let's move on here. Let me ask you this. Why or how can pastors better preach these two? Well, before I ask you that, just 30 seconds. Why are these two letters neglected? Like not too many people. When was the last time you heard somebody, you know, at or saw somebody at Starbucks read through Jude? Why, why are these yeah. letters relatively unknown in the church? Yeah, I think... Uh... Part of the reason is they're both short and they're both kind of tucked towards the back of the New Testament. Right. And you know, it's funny when you flip through the Bible, like you, you're, you're, you go like right from, you know, maybe a James all the way to Revelation. <laughs> you got some good books in there, right? Yeah. It's just yeah, practically, sure. you just flip right through it. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it is what we mentioned in terms of they they talk about the Old Testament in ways that are unfamiliar to us, or they pull out different mm-hmm. examples from the Old Testament that maybe we're not as familiar with. It just seems like it's uh, they're writing into a very different world than we live in today in terms of the examples they're using and that kind of thing. The problem is, though, is that they address issues that are so relevant to the contemporary church Mm. That when we neglect them, we actually uh, undercut our ability to respond to things like false teaching or having a robust doctrine of Scripture. Or even we miss out on uh, some of the key themes like God's preservation of his persevering people. Both of these letters have so much to encourage us with of our need to persevere in the faith, and yet at the same time, God's ability to preserve his people unto Mm. the end Mm. to bring us into Mm. the consummated new creation. Mm. Mm. That's great. Hey, what? how can pastors better preach this? Is it just a matter of reading it over and over again? Uh, Do you have any just quick tips for them? Yeah, I think when you preach these letters, you're going to have to do a lot more legwork in probably perhaps even understanding it for yourself in terms of some of the Old Testament references and what they're getting at, and then having to explain it to people who are probably not going to be familiar with some of the Old Testament references, and especially when it comes to the uh, references to to Jewish literature, you're going to have to do a lot more legwork to come up with enough of an explanation so that people can understand the point of what the author is saying, um, while at the same time uh, helping them see the the reason or the point they're drawing mm. from these texts. Um, and, and I would think, too, that the more the pastor or the preacher can make the connections between the kinds of things the false teachers were advocating for and contemporary examples— the easier it'll be for people to see the value and the contribution of these letters. Which are very significant, and there is a great deal of overlap. Very good. Yeah, I mean, one of the big emphases that comes out is um, you've got these people who 
make some profession of claiming to be a follower of Christ, but then they indulge in all sorts of sensual desires. They deny the authority of Jesus, and they even mock or laugh at the the promise of his return. And so you can see how if you can make those connections to people and say, look, here we are almost 2,000 years later, but you've got people who claim to be some kind of Christian but openly deny the authority of Jesus on this particular area of sexuality or this particular area of whatever our contemporary culture is is promoting. Mm, that's great. Uh, what resources do you commend? Obviously, the God who saves and judges, you know, by the inimitable Matthew Harmon. Hey, this thing, you know, it's great. It's a it's a great entryway entry point into this into these books. What are, what are some other sources? Yeah. So, um, uh, we mentioned my commentary in the ESV expositors commentary series. That's going to be very, uh, intro level going to be accessible to just about anybody. Um, other than that, the two primary commentaries I point people towards, actually I'll, I'll give it three, um, for the more, for more, more technical dive, uh, Richard Bauckham, in the word yeah. biblical commentary. It's so Even, good. It is so good. But it's pro- it's probably 30 years old now, is it, or maybe mm. even older than that. I can't remember. And yet it's still so it's good. so good. Um, and then um, Doug Moo wrote mm-hmm. the volume in the uh, NIV application commentary, which those can be hit or miss in terms of a series as far as I'm concerned. But uh, Moo is just really good. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he makes a lot of insightful uh, comments. And then if you pressed me and said, you can only give a pastor one commentary on this, I would probably go with Tom Schreiner's First uh, and Second Peter and Jude, which was originally in the uh, New American Commentary series. They released an, uh, an updated version, a revised edition. What was that? Probably two or three years ago that I think it's now mm-hmm. called the... Mm-hmm. Christian CSD. standard commentary yeah. or something. Um, that That's just so good because Schreiner can, Schreiner knows his stuff. And so he'll dive into some of the more technical details and he'll work in the footnotes and that kind of stuff, but he never loses sight of the message of the book. And, uh, and as you mentioned earlier, his writing is just so clear and so easy to follow that, it's accessible to a wide range of readers. So that would probably be the one mm-hmm. go-to if you force me to, but man, don't sleep on that Bauckham book, especially if you're doing more technical oh, it's work. Incredible. That it won the gold medallion award. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. fantastic. Don't also forget about Carson's and the beyond Carson commentary on the new Testament. You said yes. the old Carson wrote the second Peter and Jude uh, entry. And it's just as you would expect. It's terrific. Yeah. It, it's to the point. It's very wise. So if you're looking for something that's specifically on the New Testament use of the old, please read Carson's entry. And uh, he's, he's he's working on sort of a synthesis of that uh, that he'll be submitting to me hopefully soon so we can plug that into the dictionary that's coming out in the fall. Yeah. So, yeah, don't don't sleep on Carson either. <laughs> Anything Carson produces is always yeah. worth reading. So, yeah, um, he just turned in this um, apost- Im- imitating. Should we should we imitate the apostles? 
he he submitted that a couple of weeks ago and and it's it's really really good and that's going to be in the really dictionary good. of the new testament use of the yeah, old testament it's yeah 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 and this is you know this is stuff he hasn't hasn't written specifically on this so it's good for him it's it's good to hear that from him and 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 see how he works through the problem it's great so yeah, absolutely all right man i think we're i you know i i think we've answered really all my questions here i think we're I think we're in yeah. in good shape. Is there anything else you want to add? Did we miss anything? It's so juicy, uh, some low hanging fruit. Yeah, um, I mean, there's so much that's rich in these books. Um, I mentioned the, you know, I wrote a whole chapter on uh, God's preservation of His persevering mm-hmm. people. Um, that was just really encouraging to me, and that especially comes out in the book of Jude, um, where there's the bookends of of, of it talking about how believers are kept by Jesus or kept for Jesus and how God keeps his people for the last mm. day. And then yet at the same time, he will, he, he, he commands the readers to keep yourself in the love of God. And so it's this beautiful um, picture of, yes, my responsibility is to keep trusting in Jesus and to mm. demonstrate that, through a life of obedience and faithfulness, all the while knowing that God's spirit is the one who's empowering me to continue to trust in him uh, and to persevere in the faith. And then when you combine that with uh, Second Peter's discussion at, at the end of his book of uh, the new creation, the new heavens and earth, that that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're longing for. And that... Uh, and he characterizes it so beautifully with that it's we you know we're looking for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells mm. and just thinking mm. about that reality um was deeply encouraging to me as i wrote and uh i hope that that's something that will be encouraging to uh those who pick up the book read it and find themselves stirred with even greater longing and anticipation for uh, that new that new creation that we uh, are hoping for. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your work, and I hope that other people will benefit it benefit from it as much as I have. So I'm I'm thankful yeah. for it. Well, uh, I think we're it, good. Man. I think we're done. Yeah, thank you so yeah. much. Thanks for taking the time to chat and everything. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, we uh, will come out with a new episode next month. We've got some ideas. We got to settle on one though eventually here. So, <laughs> no, no, so but uh, I know, man. I know. But uh, we do appreciate uh, everyone joining us today on the Biblical Theology Briefing Podcast. And we look forward to seeing you again on our next episode. God bless and have a great day.